Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning for WorkInSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. It's no surprise to say I grew up a pretty fanatical sports fan. I have always loved game action. I remember vividly sneaking out of bed to watch Boston Celtics games when they were on the road during the 80s, hoping my mother wouldn't catch me couldn't watch the home games. They were on cable TV and we didn't have cable TV. The neighbors had a satellite dish and I could go over there, but it was a little easier to sneak out of bed and watch the road games. Tuesday nights on TV channel 38 in Boston. Sundays were jammed with NFL football. If my parents scheduled something that conflicted with games I wanted to watch, I was a total pain in the ass. I can admit it. Again, vividly remember my mom getting us tickets, my brother and I, to the ice capades but it conflicted with a Cowboys-Redskins game. And, I mean, at the time, this was a huge game. I mean, it was very important. I was a complete jerk the entire time of the ice capades, wondering how much of the game I was missing and what was happening. You couldn't really record stuff back then, so I knew I had missed my one chance at seeing it. And I was so poorly behaved, I got a massive lecture for being unappreciative of all that my mother does for my brother and I, which, I mean, I deserved it. I totally, I totally deserved it. But I was and am still addicted. I remember in high school watching late night West Coast college basketball games, hoping to uncover some relatively unknown but talented player that I could brag about knowing. Cedric Ceballos is a perfect example. I saw him play a game for Cal State Fullerton and then definitely name-dropped him in conversations with fellow high schoolers, acting as if I was some amateur scout, you know, with more knowledge than they had. What a dork. My grandmother every year got me a subscription to Sports Illustrated, and I read it from cover to cover. And I ripped off the cover and put it on my bedroom wall. All the iconic covers of the 80s and 90s were unceremoniously stapled to my walls in a random form, reminding me of those moments spent rifling through their pages. I kind of wished that I still had all of those, even though they were tattered and worn, but it was kind of a cool look to have that all over your wall. Anyway, I digress. I will admit, though, I could never really get into the business side of sports. I tried. My mom would try to push me towards sports business shows or to read sports business content because I think she envisioned that could actually be an actual career for myself rather than just watching games. Sadly, I admit it bored me. Deals and TV revenue and sponsorships and marketing campaigns were not as exciting as Michael Jordan, John Elway, Wayne Gretzky, and Barry Bonds. Alas, as I have aged rapidly, some would say, My focus has shifted, and now those same deals and decisions that bored me represent the game that happens for all of us. Sports business is the game we can all play, a language we can all speak, and comprises the decisions that make everything possible. In June 2020, Sportico was formed with the mission of empowering readers with the context and insights needed to understand an evolving sports ecosystem, where teams are incubators and innovation labs, franchise values are soaring, players' unions are accelerators, and athletes will not stick to sports. That is a good write-up there. I wish I could take credit for it. I stole that from their site, so I don't get any credit for that whatsoever, but I like it. 
Today's guest, Emily Karen, is one of the highly accomplished sports business reporters on the team at Sportico. Emily joined the team at their launch after working for such high-profile brands as ESPNW and Sports Illustrated. And she's here today to share her journey and insights into some of the biggest sports business-focused stories in 2021. What we're facing, where we're going, is a really fun and important conversation. So here's Emily Karen. Hi, Emily. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been a fan of Sportico since it launched in June of 2020. There's so many cool topics we can start to discuss, not only on the journalism and sports business and startup kind of life, but also just you know what's heading, where we're heading. So thanks a lot for jumping on here. Uh, from jump, from digging into your background and career a little bit, as I did some of my research for this conversation, it seems clear that you had a, a vision of your future self from pretty early on to be a sports reporter. Is that accurate? And why did you kind of go down this path? You know, it's funny. I think I always knew I wanted to write. I was in math, science, were never my strong suit in school. Um, and I always was interested in journalism and sort of the concept of news and the idea of being someone who is part of like the news ecosystem. I think, um, you know, I grew up in the Washington DC area. And so politics is obviously, you know, everything there. Um, and there was, you know, always news on in our house. And a lot of my parents' friends, you know, worked in government or worked in politics. And so I was always hearing about things before you were then reading about them. And I always loved like that idea of being part of that in some sense. When I got to UVA then, um, I went, you know, my first year, I kind of was just panicking being a freshman at a right. school that uh, was, you know, very academically challenging, especially adjusting to that. But my second year I went in and I said, okay, I wanna get involved with the student paper. And so I went to their office, which was in the basement of one of the buildings on campus, which is like your classic college newsroom, mm -hmm. <laughs> no windows, no anything. And they had an, uh, an opening in the sports section. They needed some help there. And so I kind of just fell into that. I think I was always a fan. Uh, my dad always, I was, I'm the oldest of four girls. And so I was the one my dad would pick to tag along with him to sporting events and whether it was going to Baltimore for O's games before the Nats came or then yeah. the Nats when they were in town. So I was always a fan. Um, and then I think I felt comfortable because of that. I was like, okay, I know enough about sports as a, a viewer and a consumer that I, I felt like I could do it. And so I said, yes, and the rest is history. It's a pretty good history. I mean, looking through <laughs> your bio to this point, and you're still pretty early in your career, but it's impressive. We'll get there. We'll have that Thank conversation. You. So let's talk a little bit more about that time at UVA. Great school, as you said. You did an internship at ESPNW while you were there. It's a pretty coveted opportunity. How did you get a chance to intern for the Worldwide Leader? And what was that experience like? These can be competitive opportunities. How did you get yourself to stand out for it? And then, you know, where did it take you? Uh, competitive to say the least. I think I probably applied for like 45 internships um, before that summer. So I had actually the year before, the summer before, um, interned in New York City, which is where I live now, um, for in kind of like a hybrid role where I was working um, for someone who hosted a show on Fox Business. And so I got a little bit of a taste of what, you know, actually working in media as a profession would be. Mm -hmm. And when I came back to school, it was actually the first semester that 
Virginia was offering any sort of sports journalism classes. And so I came off of that summer internship working in media in the city and I was super, you know, high on the idea of it. And so I took those classes and one of the professors there actually, uh, Anna Catherine Clay, I will shout her out for the rest of my life because I would not be uh, where I am without her. She had written for ESPN and ESPN the magazine early mm -hmm. on in her career. And so after I had applied, I applied for probably like 15 positions with ESPN because they have a pretty big um, internship program. And I went to her after I'd applied for them. And I said, here are all the positions I applied for. Is there a single person you know <laughs> who might be connected to any of them? Yeah. Um, and she actually happened to be freelancing for ESPNW at the time. And so she said, you know what? She was like, I will, I, she's like, I can't promise anything, but I will get your resume looked at and your, you know, your portfolio looked at. And I think that was something that she had told me to do early in the semester, which was invaluable, was make an actual portfolio and start, you know, keeping tabs of all the stories I was writing, the different topics I was covering, the different types of content I was engaging with. Um, so yes, connections are very important. Yeah. And that proof heard of you guys talk about. Yeah, I mean, all the time. And, and that proof of concept too, being able to show this is my work product. This is what I've done. Having that portfolio to really show off your work can stand out for the right reasons. Sure. I think there's too sometimes like a little bit of a stigma that if you have a connection somewhere that it's like almost like an unfair advantage. But I think the reality is your connection can only get you so far. So you have mm -hmm. to be able to back that up and you have to still be right for the position. You have to still be able to do the job. Um, and so I went in knowing that this was a competitive program. I was, you know, even the people I met in my intern class have gone on to have some incredible careers already. So we were all very competitive with one another. And so it was really like everyone knew they had a lot to prove that summer. Yeah, for sure. To go back to your point on, you know, networking too, and just who you know, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast before, but when I first started the industry at CNN Sports Illustrated back a while ago, um, we had probably four or five people that were there who just knew somebody. You know, they were like the son of a media writer or they were like connected to this team executive. And within a year, they were all gone because none of them could do the work. Yeah, like right. none of them could do the job. So it is that balance of you make the connections, you have those people that you know, but you have to be able to do the work too. I think that's so important to, to put in there. Right. So, so most interns don't write feature stories or end up on outside the lines. Uh, you did both, which is really impressive. I just went back and read your story on Penn State kicker, uh, jo Joey Julius, who struggled with binge eating and depression. It's 2,500 words, it's awesome, it's really well crafted. I was hooked at once, I really enjoyed the story even though it was from five years ago. Um, what drew you to the story and how did you, I, I mean, I've been in a lot of pitch meetings and you pitch a story when you're a young reporter or journalist or even producer and a lot of times somebody else takes it and runs with it. So how did, <laughs> yes. you, how did you get to the point where you could present the story and the idea and then actually get to deliver on it too? That story was actually something I wrote toward the end of my internship. So I think I had sort of tried to prove myself along the way in the weeks leading up to that. I think I was there for like 10 weeks, maybe I was 11. So there was, a, there was definitely like eight weeks of me doing a lot of grunt work isn't the right word, but much less glamorous stories. Um, yeah, it's grunt work, you know, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> you can call it that, yeah. Right, um, and I think every journalist has to do that and everyone has to go through that in a newsroom and you have to learn how to write you know, short pieces, news pieces, You know, especially today, things that happen on social, you have to be able to like 
track it and somehow turn it into a story if there's a conversation being had. So I'd done a lot of that over the summer and what I had noticed um, is that ESPNW was obviously ESPN's women-focused um, department. And when W was created in 2010, there was really no one else, at least not at a national level, strictly devoting an entire department within their newsroom to covering women's sports. But by the time I was there in was that, 2017, you had more people doing this and there was sort of this shift in the conversation and I think this shift is still happening in that, you know, the way that media continually differentiates women's sports from men's sports can sometimes almost be a detriment to, mm -hmm. you know, the advancement of women's sports. And I think I felt that personally that, you know, we don't have to differentiate, you know, a WNBA player from an NBA player when we're writing about it. You know, you can call someone a you can call Sue Bird a professional basketball player and you don't have to put, you know, a female professional player in front of that. Mm -hmm. So I think I took some of that mentality to W with me when I went and, you know, they did fantastic work and this is no disrespect to them. I was, it was an incredible opportunity. I learned so much and they really let me do a lot, um, especially as an intern. But I really tried to find moments in conversations that were happening either around women's sporting events or conversations that we were touching on already in content with W and find a way to kind of make that more mainstream, if that made sense. And so it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right. And so W had done a whole series already on body image and eating disorders and whatnot within the, within the realm of women's sports. And so I heard this story and obviously there was some, some coverage of this the year prior. Um, Joey Julius, obviously Penn State's a massive program. So he had come out and talked a little bit about what he was struggling with the year before and no one had really followed up on it. And so when W was going and doing all these stories on you know women who were struggling with these things, I thought this could be a good opportunity to kind of circle back. And I actually circled back kind of at the beginning of my internship and Penn State's athletic department <laughs> shut it down. He was still part of the program at that point. Really? They denied my interview request, um, which is pretty common. A lot of times, you know, especially mm -hmm. preseason, they don't want to do a whole lot of media or talking that's not going to be about the season and whatnot. And then maybe a month later, um, there was news came out that Joey left the team, which means I didn't have to go through Penn State anymore. And so I reached out to him directly and I just said, hey, I just want to follow up on, you know, the story that you started to tell last year and just see where you're at this year. And he got back to me and he said, I actually have so much more to say. And so I took it to my editors and I said, there's Look, a reporter's dream right there, right? right. Somebody saying, I have <laughs> more like, to yes. say. Yes, yes, let's talk. <laughs> right. And so I took it to my editors and I said, you know, do you want to have someone else on staff take this call? Do you want to have someone else on it with me? And they said, this is your story. They're like, you had the gut in instinct to reach out. You had kind of the hunch that there might be something here, like follow through with it and see where it takes you. And that's what I did. And so after I got off the phone call with them, there was a ton of stuff in there that he had never talked about before that, you know, sort of commented on the state of college athletics more broadly, the program at Penn State, and just this culture within sports of not always admitting things that might not be a physical issue. You know, obviously athletes are inspected as physical specimens on a daily basis by everyone on staff, everyone in the media. Um, but this was obviously much more of a mental health conversation, you know, a conversation about body image, a conversation about depression and anxiety. And so it clearly wasn't something that was talked about 
as much within his program, which is why he ended up leaving or something that wasn't handled in the way that was helpful for him at the time or wasn't what he needed at the time. So, yeah, I think it just, there was more to the story. Yeah. And my editors let me, let me do it. Obviously there was tons of guidance throughout the edit process. I never tackled a story that big. Um, I had only, you know, the features on air quotes because (laughs) the ones I had done at school were still running in a newspaper um, at the student paper. So you still have a word limit there where you're talking like maybe 1500 words for a feature if you're lucky. Um, And this was ended up being, it was like 3000 words when I filed and after edits, it was like 2500. And so I was really lucky to have a support system in place and in the way that, you know, the team came around me and there were other writers on staff who were like, hey, do you need help? Can I, you know, do you need ideas? Do you need to bounce, you know, how you're going to structure it off someone? And then the edit team was fantastic. And so they really just let me have the moment and follow through on what I had started. And yeah, I am very grateful for that. That says a lot about the organization and the culture too. I mean, that they not only allowed you to, but supported you through it and and helped guide. Because I mean, again, for all the people listening out there, it's an important part of your career to land in the right spots too, you know, and to be sure. at the right organizations and to be supported and have a voice and to be able to contribute. And so that had to be a really empowering moment for you as well too, to know that it wasn't just the idea, it was the full on execution they were gonna let you follow through on. Yeah, and they did that a number of other times. I know like when we approached the NBA draft in the summer, I had reached out and I said, okay, I know the NBA is not women's sports and it's not technically our beat, but this was the year like Markel Fultz was projected to go number one. His best friend, Kelsey Plum, had just got number one in the WNBA draft. I said, okay, there's a connection here. Like, can I find a way to tie them together so that we have content that contributes to the conversation that's happening? And they, you know, it was a green light then too. So I think you know, having someone who is adding content is helpful for them. Right. You know, it's very rare that a story, you know, especially an outlet like ESPN that's publishing regularly that has lots of editors on staff is going to be, you know, okay, let's pump the brakes. We don't want your story. Obviously it happens. Um, but I happened to be on a team that was really supportive of a lot of the ideas that I had. And good ideas come from everywhere. And a lot of the organizations don't always recognize that, but it sounds like they were very open to the idea that, this is a good idea. This is a good concept. This is a good story that we can tell, not about where did it come from or who did ge- who generated it. It's more about, it's all about the content, right? And that's, that's sure. nice to know. So let's go back to the Joey Julius a little bit. Um, it's not, I mean, again, big, big feature, 2,500 words. I dorked out on it. I, I copied <laughs> it over to, because I dorked out not only on the content, but also I copied it over to see like how many word count. Cause I was like, oh, wow, they really it's gave her long. some leeway here. And it's yeah. 2,500 words. It's great. Um, but that's a lot in our, in our world to talk about. Like that's a big, that's a big commitment on their part. But then to jump on OTL and talk about it as well on outside the lines. I mean, I've known 20 year vets that can't really do that. that can't really jump on and, and articulate themselves and be comfortable in that environment. How did you channel that? level of confidence as, I mean, a college junior on an internship to be able to get out there and and be so um, visible? I think something that one of my mentors once said to me, who was a reporter in D.C. on the Hill for a number of years, he said that, you know, confidence comes from trusting in the work that you've done. And as a reporter, your job, your job really is to know the stories you're telling better than just about anyone except maybe the people involved, right? The people who had the center of those stories. 
And I think when you trust the process and trust the work that you've done leading up to it, there's definitely a confidence and a power that comes from that. And I had spent hours researching and fact checking and double checking everything Joey said and corroborating it with other accounts, you know, that he had, you know, statements he'd made publicly before with the athletic department, um, with other stories that had been published with the timeline. And I'd really done the work, the legwork behind it. And so I think it was just a confidence that came from knowing that I, knowing and trusting that I knew the story inside and out, you know, so I didn't really need to prepare answers. Obviously, you know, something a PR person told me once was like, put like a little sticky note with like touch points of like things you really want to hit on and like, <laughs> look at that in the morning before. Yep. Yep. But beyond that, you know, I, I think I just, I knew that I knew the story and I knew that there would be power in telling that story for Joey. When I first came up in the industry, there were writers and there were on camera, right? And so now that line is extremely blurry. And most people who write are also analysts. They're also doing TV hits. They're also doing, you know, social media content and being more uh, visible themselves. Uh, do you like that side of it as well? Taking some of the, the writing and being able to do a broadcast presence with it too, whether it's on social or otherwise? I love it. And I also think for anyone coming up in the industry, I think it's a really valuable skill because this industry, you know, the term multimedia is so real. It's very rare, um, obviously it still happens, that like you will only ever be asked to work in one media today. You know, and I think it's such an advantage to be able to kind of jump between different platforms. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's just, I think it's fun. I think it's, you know, a fun way to talk more about your work. And I think too, when you write a cool story, it's as a reporter, and this is probably so nerdy of me to say, like, it's really fun to keep talking about it and like to answer questions about it and to kind of get to extrapolate beyond what you could put in the words that you wrote. Yeah, that's not nerdy at all. That's how I think everybody I've ever come across is. It's like you put in so much work into these right. stories and you really know the people and you have this personal connection with them in some ways. You know, not always a personal connection, but you just feel like you know them and you want to be able to express it as much as you possibly can. And to be able to have that extra channel to do that, I think, is a really cool direction that we continue to head. So, um, you know, you've got a quiet confidence to you. It's clear. Uh, you obviously have had to be pretty assertive throughout your career to get to the places that you have. What other traits would you ascribe to yourself? Like, what do you think, how would you label yourself in your career and like what's kind of set you ahead and put you on this path? Um, it's a hard question. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. It's okay. <laughs> You're not um, used to ask. I mean, getting asked the questions is probably a role reversal I, I was going to say, right? this is very different. Usually I am yeah. the one asking these questions. To I know, other I people. like this part. <laughs> <laughs> Putting other people on the spot's fun. I think um, I've always worked hard in my career. And I think beyond having ambition and being driven, you also have to be dedicated. And I think that is something I would ascribe to myself um, because I don't think that in an industry where you actually are producing physical works that other people consume, I don't think there's a way to succeed without working hard at that. You know, I think it's probably true that you can't really find much success in any industries without working hard, but especially when you know, you're not just doing something that's internally facing, like you really are putting your work out there for the world to see. And so you want it to be the best that you can offer because it's it's an outward representation of who you are as a reporter, as a journalist, and as, a, as an employee. 
Um, well said. Yeah. Right. And especially when in an industry where your product is so exposed, I've always wanted to make sure that that product represents who I am and the work that I do. And so I've always worked hard. And I think that's perhaps where the confidence comes from is like, I've, I really do trust the work that I do because I always, you know, dot my I's and cross my T's. And I think, you know, every good reporter does that. And, um, I just think it kind of all pulls itself together in a way that lets you be confident. And I also think there are not many females in my industry. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever worked in a newsroom <laughs> with more than, I mean, ESPNW was the anomaly and it was actually a funny place to start my career because I was on a team of almost all women. Mm-hmm. And then I took my first job post-grad and I was in a completely different situation when I was in a newsroom that had very few women and still had more women than many others do. Um, and so I think I just always learned to speak up for myself and to advocate for stories I wanted to do and to kind of have to ask, not necessarily ask for opportunities, but bring stories I wanted to the people in charge and make those opportunities for myself. And so I think being a self-starter has also served me well. Those are great attributes and something that has clearly worked out really well for you. So when you say that and you talk about some of your experiences in various newsrooms and maybe looking around and not seeing a lot of people like you, um, which is an experience we talk about a lot on this show as well for a lot of different types of people, um, who do you look up to in the industry? Who do you look at and say, boy, they've really you know, set the, set the bar high and I want to be like them or just learn from or pull from? Is there anybody out there that really stands out to you on that side of things? Yeah, there are a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, when I was younger, it was people, you know, who were on TV who I idolized, whether mm-hmm. that was Aaron Andrews or Carissa Thompson. And it was really that, like, the people who were most visible. And I think, obviously, I still have so much respect for those women. And I think there's so much that, there's so many doors that they opened for other women to come. Um, but I think now, too, a lot of my role models are people who are more behind the scenes, just... Mm-hmm because I think those are names you don't see or hear as often. Um, but there are still so many people who you know, have opened doors in a much less public um, sense. And so it is cool to see that happening uh, in the industry, but hopefully more to come. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right, still work to be made and still work to be made in diversifying newsrooms across the country and not just in terms of gender, but in terms of race and sexual orientation and ideology, I think. Um, 100%. And I think steps are being taken toward that, but I do think a lot of times think it's the women who work behind the scenes. You know, there were a couple female editors at Sports Illustrated, which is where I worked uh, my first job after school, who worked on the magazine side, who you would never know their names because yep. they were an editor, they didn't have bylines, they didn't you know, publish pieces, but they were instrumental in crafting massive sections of this iconic magazine. And those are the women who I think I've actually taken a lot of lessons from since. I think, uh, no, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, my first boss in the industry, Sandy Malcolm, was a huge mentor to me. And she taught me so much from 
everything you're talking about too and nobody would ever know who that is and yet you'd hear Jackie McMullen you'd hear Sally Jenkins you'd hear a lot of these front uh, these familiar names that became iconic in the industry and deservedly so but you're right there are a lot of unheralded people behind the scenes that are doing amazing things and it's nice to celebrate them as well you right. re you referenced Sports Illustrated so you jumped there after graduating and you were on the news and college sports kind of beat I've always been surprised throughout my career I mentioned I was at CNN Sports Illustrated and then I was at Fox Sports for a while I've always been amazed at the you think of journalism as a standardized thing and yet sometimes organizations have extremely different approaches to their storytelling, oh, their gathering, yeah. their sourcing. What was that experience like for you as, you as you've gone through your career and noticed that maybe there's a different way of approaching things that maybe you did or didn't agree with? I think it's really fascinating to see the, how different, a different size newsroom operates. And mm -hmm. I think I've now, you know, being from ESPN is one of the largest, you know, that there is. Um, ESPN had beat reporters in like every major market. You know, you had someone who was the Texans beat reporter and someone who's the Buffalo Bills beat reporter. And so you had people on the ground for mm -hmm. kind of across the country at every different team and whatnot. And so the people who were, it was a very decentralized system and it works really well for them because they get, you know, all of the local news and all the bigger stories all at once. And then when I got to Sports Illustrated, you know, up until a few years ago, SI didn't have, you know, local beat reporters. I know that's part of their new model now, um, since they've come under new ownership, but the news desk, which is where I started, was covering everything. Yeah. <laughs> we were covering every sport, um, every market, even, you know, international stories. We were literally doing it all. And so it was a very different approach where no one was really a specialist in anything, but everyone was really good at covering news. And so it didn't matter where the news was coming from. I think our team and our staff and Stanley Kay, who's, who's ran the news desk when I was there, was really good at just teaching people how to cover news as a story, regardless of what it was about or where it was coming from. Um, and also giving everyone on the news desk opportunities to kind of spread their wings a little bit. And we go back to talking about mentors. I think SI did have a lot of people there who were willing to, male and female, willing to give people the chance to write, kind of like my experience at ESPN. Um, and so doing some of those side gigs is actually how I ended up moving over to kind of doing more college focused stuff was that I was yeah. writing a lot of that on top of the news desk. And then now my current job, we have an even smaller newsroom um, than we had at Sports Illustrated. And it's different because we're in sports business, so we're not really covering breaking news on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's a much more hands-on feel. Obviously I have, you know, I talk to my editors much more often and it's longer conversations and it's not just like, here's an edit, here's what's done. Like it's a lot more, I think it can be a lot more individualized because each editor, <laughs> the editors are managing so, you know, some, a smaller pool of people. Um, yeah. But I think there's benefits to every scenario. I think I learned something different in every newsroom that I've been in. But I, I was surprised when I got to Sports Illustrated how different it was from when I was at ESPN. Because I think in my mind, I had expected them to be more similar than they were. Kind of yeah, to your it was point a, at the beginning. It was a massive. It was a massive shock for me on a personal note when I went from CNN to Fox Sports. CNN was like 
layers and layers of approvals and sourcing and everything before you went to air with it. Like there was just right. a monotonous system. And at Fox, it was like, if you heard this person in the hallway who maybe knew their cousin, <laughs> that's good enough, run with it. And it was so weird for me. I was like, just blown away by the, the loose, you know, definition of what journalism was. Right. It changed everything, but okay. So Sportico formed in June, 2020, you joined the team at that time. What, what's different about it? What, what makes Sportico different? And what's it been like working for more of a startup company versus the ESPNs and Sports Illustrators of the world? You know, I actually, I really love the startup feel. It's like very scrappy and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like everyone is working really hard and you know that, and you know that everyone is like really giving it their all. Um, I mean, I know like my editors are working. I sent an email the other night at like 11 PM because the source had sent me a correct, like a, a tweak of something that we were running the next morning. And one of my editors responded to me within like five minutes. And I was like, why are you awake? <laughs> yeah. But it's, and he was like, we got two stories in tonight. Like we're turning them immediately for the morning. And it's like a very much hustle and grind and like just get as much content and as much exclusive content and breaking news content as we can to kind of really distinguish ourselves in the industry. Um, and I love that about it, but we also are, so we're owned by Penske Media. So we are part of the same family as uh, Rolling Stone and Variety and Billboard and a bunch of other publications. So I think there's some semblance of a more corporate structure that it that you aren't necessarily aware of at first because we are a startup. Um, and so it's kind of nice because you do have like the built-in corporate systems <laughs> to yeah. support what we're doing. And I think it's a really nice blend of the two. Um, but I also, I think sports business is sort of a, a niche that became increasingly relevant over the last year when sports yeah. closed down. And so I think it was a really unique time for us to launch. Um, we actually moved up our launch by several months. We weren't supposed to launch until I think it was September. And then the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, okay, the only thing people are talking about right now is sports business. And we have right. all of the experts that is their bread and butter. That is their wheelhouse, you know, getting ready to join our staff. Like, let's get this thing started earlier than we had planned. Um, so it was very, very scrappy then at the start. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was like, oh, shit. Oh, sorry. I don't know if I'm. No, you can. That's fine. Okay. Zach Maridis like, was on a couple weeks ago and he dropped the F-bomb like five times. So it's like, don't worry okay. about it. <laughs> <laughs> totally fine. He's great. Also, we've actually done a, some coverage of Teamworks and stuff, and they have an awesome... Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, love yeah. that. Mm -hmm. um, but it was like, oh, crap, we need to get started and get going, and like, what can we pull together, and like, what stories are we going to launch with that are going to make an impact, that are going to get us recognized? And then it's been a very much a building effort since. Um, so it's cool. And I think the most unique thing is I've never been in a newsroom where people collaborate as much as we do. Oh, that's cool. I think people in newsrooms can get very territorial. They're like, this <laughs> oh, is yeah. my, right, this is my story and this is my byline and like, I want mm. the credit for it. Because at the end of the day, like I said, you know, the work that you do is, that's what your career is going to be defined by and based on. Um, but I actually love that. Like we work with so, like if I'm doing a story that taps into I cover college sports and women's sports for us. But if I'm doing a college sports story that has like a really techie angle or it's like very much about some new innovation, I will rope in, you know, our tech and media reporter 
Yeah. And so we will make sure that we're asking all the right questions and covering all of our bases. And so I think our content is much more thorough in that regard than if I were just doing that on my own. Um, and that is definitely all intentional. I think everyone that our editor-in-chief, uh, Scott Stachnik, has brought on board was okay with that from the beginning, mm -hmm. was willing to work together. And so it's been really cool to be part of that, actually. Yeah, that is a bit unique too. I have I have people say to me all the time when they, they'll watch a TV show that tries to represent a media newsroom, right? And they'll say, is that what it's really like? And I'm like, yeah, a lot of times. I mean, the backstabbing and yeah. infighting and fighting over story. I'm like, yeah, that, that kind of is not too bad. So it's it's uh, it's nice to hear that you're saying you've got a little bit of a different environment there. Uh, okay, so let's jump into some of this important sports business topics that are happening now. There's a lot of things happening that I think are really interesting. And so often, you know, as the reporter, you're reporting the facts. You don't always get to share your opinion. So now Opinions. this is a time where you get to <laughs> okay. expand and have your opinion, right? Which is fun. Uh, okay. So one of the biggest stories to me so far this year was the discrepancy in treatment for women versus men at the NCAA tournament. Um, the story itself was broken by Stanford University sports performance coach Ali Kirshner on Instagram. And then after the NCAA made their statement about how there wasn't enough space, et cetera, um, Oregon player Sedona Price broke another video on TikTok. It's cool, it's viral, it's all meaningful, it's forced change and transparency, which is great. But is it a little bit frustrating as a reporter that everybody else has a way to amplify these stories? Is it hard sometimes to sit back and realize that there's a great story there that you'd love to get into, but everybody else, I mean, it can, it can kind of run on its own in some ways. Is that frustrating? Sometimes. I think the key though, and this is how I've tried to approach every story in my career, is just finding where you can add value as a legitimate reporter. And whether that's you can act, you can access people who have more to say, whether it's, you know, you have a, a network of experts who can really point out what's you know happening at a deeper level or whatever it is. Um, as long as you can find a way to add converse, like add value to the conversation and you know drive it in either you know drive the conversation forward or to a new direction, I think it's maybe less frustrating the times when you can't find an in and where it's like, this is just a viral moment. And then 15 million people are commenting on it on the internet or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of takes on a life of its own. It's definitely a different, um, experience, not something that I ever learned about in school because a lot of the reporters who, uh, turned into professors and who I learned from didn't really report in like sort of a social media era. Right. So it definitely is, is something that I think people are adjusting to and adapting to on the fly, for sure. So how important is it then, and how much focus do you put on developing your own sources and your own unique connections? Is that something that becomes even more important is to get those deep insider connections for yourself? A hundred percent. I think too, you think about how many blogs have popped up and even a, you know, a, a company like Sports Illustrated that now has different sites for every different market in college and major sports, you have a million people a lot of times mm -hmm. covering the same things. And so you have to know the right people and you also have to do good works and that they, you know what I mean? Like you have to, they have to know that you're going to do good work based off what they tell you or what they share with you or that you're going to represent it accurately, accurately and fairly and in a way that 
this is a tricky, not that a way that makes them want to share more with you and not to yeah. say that it has to be favorable to them because obviously as a journalist, you want to be unbiased and you want to be just reporting the facts. But if you're kind of throwing them under the bus or if you're doing a half-assed job, then they're not really going to be that likely to bring something to you the next time. Right. And so I always think of developing sources as like just maintaining any friendship, right? Like it takes work and it takes regular check-ins. And even if I don't need something from a source, and this is something that our editor-in-chief is so huge on, it's, you know, checking in just to see how they're doing. If something happens, you know, near where you know that they live or they work, it's, hey, like, what's going on? How are you doing? I saw this and I thought of you. And so it's definitely a lot of intentionality behind developing source relationships, but also maintaining those and growing them so that they continue to trust you and want to work with you. It's so smart. And my friend, Laura Oakman, who's been a long time sports reporter and for the NFL on Fox and other channels, her and I worked together for a long time. She used to say to me all the time, she's like, turn an interview into a conversation mm -hmm. and turn a, uh, a subject into a friendship or relationship. And yes. you'll just, that's how you do it. That's the system. And I'm like, oh, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is a skill and it's definitely a learned skill. I think, um, I have found, especially because I'm younger than a lot of my colleagues, that like when an athletic director gets on the phone with me, there's almost like you have to try to find something to build a relationship off of. Because yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not always necessarily the same demographic as the people I'm talking to. And so, you know, our editor-in-chief talks to sources about his son all the time because his son is like this crazy hockey player and they're like traveling all around New England all the time for hockey games. Mm -hmm. And any of his sources who have kids can relate. And I, I have, you know, I obviously am missing that at this point yeah. in my life. And so you do have to really try to find common ground and find ways to turn that, that source or that interview into a continued relationship. Yeah, that's the that's the interesting balance there. So you're prolific. I go back through Sportico and, and you write a lot. You have a lot of bylines. <laughs> you are you are out there a lot. So how do you stay? I think that's one of the greatest challenges for young people coming up in the industry. How do you stay creative? How do you continually come up with new ideas? I think that's one of the hardest things is for young people to, you know, come up with a good idea, deliver on it. And then it's like, what's next? What else do you have? And just keep having them lined up. So how do you do that? What's your process? I think the first thing I'll say is I'm very lucky to have developed a pretty good source network. Um, and I've developed a pretty good relationship with a number of people who work on the PR side at different agencies, whether that's, you know, an actual talent agency, whether that's an athletic department or, you know, a place like Teamworks or Influencer or any of these companies that work sort of in industries that are adjacent or overlap to my beat with my beats. And so some of the stories just come from, you know, being fed stories or someone mm -hmm. will call you and say, we have new news, but you know, that's a lot of the more routine news stuff. And so the stories that are done in between that, or the stories that I try to do that I'm more, that are more, you know, things that I'm pitching directly are things, I always say this, I try to see the forest through the trees. And that's, I think, what always I come back to mm -hmm. is, you know, I have four different stories about 
NIL deals happening? Like, what's the bigger picture? You know, or what's the new in? Or how can I add value to this conversation beyond the same four stories that are being reported about, you know, X, Y, and Z company signing a deal with X, Y, and Z school ahead of yeah. X, Y, and Z states NIL laws going into effect. Right. Um, so I think it's really just continuing to ask yourself, what are the main conversations happening in my be in my area, in my industry? And how can I add to those? How can I find a new end to that? How, you know, and I even sometimes will go to sources I have and say, hey, what do you think the biggest stories are happening right now in our space? And then they come back with the stories and I say, okay, I never thought about that one. Yeah. Or this one has not been top of mind for me, but clearly it's top of mind for you. So why is that? And how can I make sure that I'm covering it in case it's top of mind for people, you know, for other people too. So that's really smart too, because that makes them feel valued, right? That makes them feel like their, their opinion matters and that they're part of this. It's not just a one way street where you're asking them for, or, you know, information or whatever it may be. You're asking their opinion. You're involving them in the conversation. That's gotta be a powerful dialogue to have with them too. Yeah, and I, I swear I've gotten some great stories out of it yeah. because people are like, hey, you know what? I actually saw this thing the other day that no one's talking about, but like this is fascinating because this could change the way my athletic department operates. And then I'm like, okay, sweet, thanks. That's and important. Like, Let's talk about right? it. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Yeah. And I think too, there's a power in reaching out to people in my industry, like off the record or like not in an mm-hmm. interview or like in official capacity where people feel free to just engage with you as someone else who's familiar with the space. Yeah. And you can have a lot of really interesting conversations that way, I think, in any industry. Um, I know my dad is in finance and he always talked about when he was younger, just reaching out to the people who work above him just to be like, hey, like, what do you think I should be focusing on learning? Mm-hmm. And I think I've, that's, this is my way of translating that into journalism. It's smart, it translates. It translates really well. I think that's a really smart approach. You mentioned NIL, so names, image, and likeness legislation, which is, I think, one of the most interesting topics going on right now. I'm, I'm really into it. I'm very curious about it. I'd love to hear your opinion. Why is it such an important story for our audience? And then how do you think this all plays out? I mean, everybody here has heard me talk about it, and they've heard me interview other people in regards to the legislation. I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Well... Yeah, it's a pretty broad question. Take it it however you want, right? It is. And I feel like, you know, on Twitter, when you see like those reporters, I don't think many reporters my generation do this because I think people inherently understand that Twitter is oftentimes a place for opinions. But a lot of newsrooms uh, will mandate that like reporters put in their bio, like tweets are my own opinion, (laughs) like Uh not reflective of my employer. Uh, I'm going to just throw one of those disclaimers out there. I love it. Good, because we're going to get a good, honest answer from you then. Go. Yeah, I think especially the more time I've spent working in sports business, the more you see how commercialized college sports has become. And I don't think the rules or the governing bodies have adapted their treatment of college athletes to reflect that yet. And I think that's where you're seeing this tension is not in the sense that people are asking for college athletes to be paid outright like professionals, it is in more that they want an equitable treatment based on the growth that the industry has seen. And I think that's where there's like this disconnect. Um, and I know, like, I hate the term student athlete. I really do. Because okay. I, don't, I don't think it's an accurate representation of how college athletes are treated today or how they're valued or what they contribute. 
Right at the end of the day, the NCAA's whole mantra is that they're students first. But if you're a football player, your entire schedule, what classes you can take, what classes you can fit into your schedule, all of that is dictated by your sport. Like I remember when I was at Virginia, there were some players who were taking a class that they had literally no interest in, had nothing to do with their major, but they needed you know, another class and this was one that fit in their schedules. Yeah. So at the end of the day, they were athletes first and that's how the university valued them. And that's not a knock on Virginia, that's just how the system operates. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people just want the system to recognize that at the end of the day. I think that's where it comes from. And I think the not NCAA property movement that Isaiah Livers and some of the other basketball players started at March Madness encompasses mm-hmm. that, where there is a lot of a sense that the athletes are just part of this, like a cog in this massive like money-making machine. Mm-hmm. And there's no, not no, there's very little value that they're getting out of that today especially when you look at in college basketball how many other leagues are emerging how many other avenues these players have to go develop as players you know on the court but then also to get exposure and brand awareness and the whole thing you no longer really need a university or a college athletic department to do that for you if you're trying to go pro or even if you're not trying Mm -hmm. to go pro um so i think those athletes are starting to just say like we don't necessarily need the system anymore. We choose to participate in the system and then the system doesn't choose to treat us or to thank us for that participation. And obviously people will people get up in arms because you know a lot of these kids are on scholarships and whatnot, but at the end of the day, most college athletes are not on full rides. If you look right. at statistically speaking, especially when you're talking about Olympic sports or non-revenue sports, mm-hmm very few of those athletes are on full scholarships. So they're still paying the university to participate in these programs and to make money for them, even on football teams. You know, there are far more football players than there are full scholarships available. And so I think it's just, I think it's, it's a reflection also of this entire like athlete empowerment movement that we're seeing in the professional realm as well. And you're seeing that and sort of the frustration with the system all trickle down into and all get wrapped into these NIL conversations. Do you think this helps to, to rectify any of that? Do you think the legislation could even the playing field some, or do you think there's still rot with it's still rot with issues? Oh, for sure. I think it will definitely yeah. even the playing field a little bit. Um, I think the biggest problem with this is almost the NCAA's own argument. Like, I mean, we saw this when they went to the Supreme Court the other week. The NCAA's argument is that they're not paying the players because people don't want them to pay the players, because people want them to be amateurs and whatever else. When people are like, if this kid, if Trevor Lawrence is making $100,000 a year to do head and shoulders advertisements on my Instagram feed, I'm still going to watch him at a Clemson game, right? Right. Like, it's not going to change the experience for the fan. It's not going to change the experience... um, I don't think that much for the player. It's going to enhance their opportunities while they're there on a, you know, even on an entrepreneurial business side. Um, and I, I think- also think I also think it's terribly short sighted by the NCAA, because, as you mentioned, the Olympic sports, the non-revenue generating sports, think about the opportunity there. 
if you now have a softball player or a water bowl polo player or a wrestling player who starts to feel incentivized to build their own brand, they're also building the brand of their program. School. They're exactly. also helping raise that up. So it's like there's a huge benefit, I think, to the schools as well. And they're not seeing that. They're only putting up this wall. And it's like, no, this is opportunity. It really is. Yeah, it definitely is. I hope that there is some sort of resolution that comes soon. I'm not super confident right. that we will see that without, you know, court challenges or whatever else to Florida's law or state law or whoever ends up being up first. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, it will come down to athletes feeling empowered and athletes feeling like they have control over their own brands and branding as like much of a buzzword as that is right now is such an important part of an athlete's career. And especially now with social media, like a lot of them have built substantial followings. And I think just the, the feeling that you can have control over that and you yeah. do something with that is a really empowering thing for an it athlete. It definitely is. It definitely so, is. I'm excited. I really hope it starts to really take hold and we can see how it plays out because it's just going to be interesting to see how it all works outside of theory and in actual practice. Cause I think it should be really, really interesting. So you and your transitioning a little bit here, you and, and Scott, Sha Scott Sa Soshnick. Oh my gosh. Words are hard, right? That's, um, it's a mouthful too. Scott, I have to say. Scott Soshnick. Okay. A lot of S's in there. It does a lot of S's. Yeah, I got you. I might, I, I, now I'm going to leave that as it is. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no problem looking like a fool. Uh, you guys broke a really important story recently with Lucy Rushton being named DC United GM on a personal side. What does that feel like to be the first to market with an exclusive story? That's got to be like a, a pretty cool moment, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. It is. <laughs> um, it is a cool story. And I think I mentioned this before, but like one of Sportico's big tenants is like we really pride ourselves on having exclusive news and on breaking news. And that's how we've tried to distinguish ourselves in the industry. And it all just goes back to like, people trust us and people trust our reporters and our reporters are very well connected. And so we've done a lot of that. Um, but I think also on a personal level, that was a cool story for me because Lucy Russian is just the second female general manager in major league soccer history. The last yeah. one was in 1999 and she's only the second current active female GM, um, aside from the Marlins Kimming. So, yep. It is cool and it's cool to see people react to it. Like I was excited when we heard the news and I knew we were getting the news and I was building the story and then you put it out into the internet and you see other people get excited about it and people respond really like enthusiastically and that is also a great feeling I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like you don't you don't write news and you don't get into news to make people feel good all the time, especially if you go like a hard news or politics route. But mm -hmm. it is like you do feel like you're making a difference. Like you added some value to someone's day because you told them something that they didn't know. And in this case, it was something that also made them excited. So you hear this story and, and you framed it beautifully about Lucy Rushton and, and being one of the few women in, on an active team in a major leadership role. And you hear that and you think, cool, progress. But then we just talked a little while ago about the discrepancy with the NCAA women's and men's tournaments. So sometimes this idea of progress feels like such a disconnect and it almost feels unfair for me to even talk about it as a you know 40 year old dude. Um, but I'll, I'll ask you, does that, is that kind of a hard thing to reconcile to hear progress in this area and then see such 
like backwards thinking in another area? And does it ever, does it really feel like progress to you when we talk about gender equality? There's a lot of feeling like we're taking one step forward and two steps back. And I think, especially as someone who covers women's sports, um, I, f I think I see a lot of that on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of it just comes from progress is not linear a lot of yeah. times. And as frustrating as that is and discouraging as that can be, I would rather take the one step forward than be stagnant. That's how I've always approached my personal life and that's kind of how I try to look at it. I think I've never really been like a glass half full type of gal, but I do, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's also how you, you know, as someone in my position consuming this kind of content and writing about this content on a day-to-day -day basis, I think you have to sort of take an optimistic view of it because it would be exhausting otherwise. And it is sometimes, you know, I. We did a series called March Madness Daily where we wrote a story every single day of March Madness. And some of the stories we didn't plan to write, but as soon as the Sedona Price video went viral on mm -hmm. TikTok, there was a new story for us. And it's discouraging in a sense to be like, you know, to look at it and say, why is this happening? But then it's also encouraging to be able to say, okay, how can I package this information in a way that people who A, maybe are resistant to reading something about this or be who have these like preconceived notions or people who respond negatively to it how can i maybe like change their mind or maybe add value and help them to see another perspective so you know we ended up doing stories on that and just taking a look at the different ways the men's and women's tournaments are structured and how all of that plays out and how all of that contributes to the inequities, sort of the surface level inequities that we're seeing. Not that they're yeah. surface level to diminish their importance, right. but you know, the ones that are visible right now, a lot of that starts much deeper. It's like an iceberg, right? <laughs> like a lot of that starts with inequities in the system far below the tip that you're seeing. Um, and so I think I really, value my role in that sense. Like I really do have kind of a, a reverence for the the beat in a sense because I I always want to be a positive part of, you know, progress in that sense. But I, I also am very aware that progress, especially in male dominated spaces a lot of times, is is not gonna be a linear trajectory. It takes think, work. Yeah. I think that's an amazing perspective and it shows a great deal of maturity because I find myself getting frustrated by it. I can only imagine what it's like for, you know, somebody reporting on it in the front lines, but also just any woman trying to get ahead in any industry that feels like there's this constant roller coaster ride of progress. And then, you know, something that's just so obviously and blatantly terrible that it just can be so discouraging. Um, let's oh, finish I definitely, with this. And I oh. definitely do still get discouraged. I do have to say. I'm sure. Right, I know. Right. And like I said, I'm from the D.C. area. And it was like one day I was reading last year a story about Kim Ng being the Marlins first female GM. And then yeah. however long it was later, there are stories about, you know, the football team I grew up rooting for in Washington. All of right. these problems internally there. And like right. these are two stories that I look at as a woman in the industry. And I'm like, wow, this is so great when I think about what's happening with the Marlins. And then the same time we still live in a world where stuff is happening like what was happening within the Washington football team. So it, it is frustrating yeah. and discouraging and all of the things I promise. But, um, 
you know, sometimes you wouldn't be I feel human like, if it wasn't right. Like right. you'd have to be a cyborg at some point if, <laughs> if you didn't, if you didn't feel frustrated by a lot of the things that we see actually playing out in front of us. Um, let's finish up with this. It's kind of on the same level of conversation. It's kind of in the same tone for all the young women in sports coming up in the industry, whether in reporting or operations or marketing or some other discipline, what advice would you share to them? I'm sure you've had a lot of guidance over your careers. What would you like to say back to, to those people listening that might help that steer them a little bit? I would say that the concept of just keeping your head down and working hard is kind of a myth. I think especially when you work in an industry where you are not the majority, you have to speak up for yourself and you have to advocate for yourself and you have to be your own champion and you have to find allies and find people who will also advocate for you. I think you do need to do the work. You need to you know, be willing to put in the time, the effort, the energy. But I, I, I get frustrated with that concept of like, just keep your head down and grind and like your yeah. work will be appreciated because that's not always the case. And so I really would just encourage anyone who gets into the industry to just be your own advocate because that I think is actually how things get done. You have to be willing to speak up for yourself and stand up for yourself and for your work. That is an amazing place to end this conversation. <laughs> Emily, fantastic. This is so great. I'm so glad I got to speak with you, got to hear all your insight on these things, got your opinions on some of these topics too that you don't always often get to share. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Emily for coming on the show. I knew it was going to be good. I knew she was just going to have so much insight and strength and character and power and passion. And I was so into it. Like, I love talking about these topics. I hope that it gave you all some insight and some actionable advice, too. There's so many people out there that want to get into the journalism, want to get into sports reporting, want to get into on-camera work. And I think that that line has blurred. It's no longer like you're a writer or you're on camera. There's a blurry line there. Everybody's doing both. People on camera are writing more. People on the print side are, are on camera more. So if you want to get into this side, if you want to get into the storytelling, if you want to be in the know in sports business or any part of the sports industry, this interview encapsulated so much of that. So thanks to Emily for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen and continue to tune in. I love getting to know so many of you and to continue to build our show and audience. So thank you for being a part of it. All right, everybody. Let's get back to work. 